0: Listener Production.
1: If you have a son, do you think he likes himself?
0: As soon as our girl book came out, we were inundated with questions from boy parents. They came in on social media, in emails, on webinars. What about boys? What can I do to make my boy like himself too? Today on Feed, Play,
1: Love, how we can raise boys who like themselves.
2: Feed, Play, Love. With Siobhan Hunt.
1: My husband and I have a boy and a girl, and I've always been conscious of treating them equally. As a feminist, I know the issues holding my daughter back. However, I'm not so sure about the challenges my son might face because of his gender. Casey Edwards and Dr. Christopher Scanlon are the authors of Bringing Up Boys Who Like Themselves, and they've looked deeply into the things that are holding our boys back. Casey, Christopher, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having us back, Siobhan. It's lovely to speak to you again.
2: Great to be here.
1: It's a pleasure. And of course, um, I should preface this by saying you wrote a book for girls called Raising Girls Who Like Themselves, uh, and you both have two daughters. You both have two daughters because you're married, and they're your children. <laughs> <laughs> There's not four girls between the two of you. It's
0: convenient how it worked yeah. out like that.
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it all lined up. It all lined up, and and you had all this great response from the book. But of course, um, those of us who have girls have similar questions about their boys. And I must admit, I'm myself, am much more accustomed to seeing. Those of the male gender as being dominant and not needing so much help. So, given that I'm looking at it from a feminist slash female perspective, what did you discover are the main challenges for our boys?
0: Yeah, can I just say that we really didn't want to turn our two books into the battle of the sexes. And when we approached boys and the troubles that boys are having, and often, In some places, they are struggling more than girls. We are not saying that it's easier to be a girl at all. Um, We still acknowledge, you know, that there is a huge gender gap in terms of pay and and, um, power in our culture. But what we found out through our research is that boys really are struggling, and in some ways they are struggling more than girls. And one of the reasons behind that is because there are an army of women who are fighting and have been fighting for decades for our girls to do and be anything. But the same is not true for boys. There's still only one way to be a boy. And if you deviate from that as a boy, the penalty is really harsh. And a lot of parents who are extremely well-meaning are forcing their boys into what is called the boy box, the man box. And they're doing that because they know that there's penalties for boys who step outside of it. But we would argue that the penalty is far greater to keep boys inside the man box and and chisel away at our boys to make them all one version of masculinity.
1: And what I find interesting about this and about your book is that, as I mentioned, I like to think of myself as being quite equal with my boy and my girl and that I'm very conscious of how I speak to my son and and the way that I treat him. But I'm assuming that what you found is that even parents who think they're conscious, and those would be the parents who are reading your book, let's be honest, even those parents can have a sort of an unconscious bias. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. And there's there's a whole stack of research around this and there's been studies. There's a great little study that was done, which is actually available. You can watch it on YouTube, where they have toddlers and they give them the name of, you know, so it's, it's actually Olive, but they call it Oliver and they dress her in boys' clothes, something like that. And then they kind of get them to play. They have carers come in and play. So they kind of think that they're these people are carers and they think that they're going to treat the children the same no matter what. And, of course, they're given just the name and the clothes and they start to interact quite differently. It's the kind of toys that they offer the children to play with and then how they play with them as well. So even we kind of have in our minds that, yeah, we, we, we're going to treat our kids, whether they're a girl or a boy, the same no matter what, but there's this whole thing called society and culture and all of that programming that comes into play as well. And you can outrun that to a degree, but only to a degree you know so you've got it that's one of the things you can be conscious of it but doesn't necessarily but just being conscious of it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't do it you can pull yourself up and go oh I'm done doing that again i'm saying those things again and we all do it that's the thing so i, I don't know whether we can absolutely outrun this we can begin become more conscious of it and we can try and modify our behavior um and maybe you know over time we can sort of steer our our behaviors in certain directions as well
0: We had a mum who told us most emphatically that she treats her children exactly the same. And as she was saying that, she was calling her daughter honey and darling and her son little man. Now, just those words alone have totally different meanings and and will be received totally differently by the children. And so that's also what the research showed, that Mm. even when we think we're gender neutral, most often we're not. And from the moment children take their first breath, the world will treat them differently depending on their gender.
1: Now, just to play devil's advocate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there is an argument that there are some quintessentially different things about boys and girls in terms of the way their brains are wired and the way they do certain things. I mean, I don't know how you ever separate nature versus nurture, but there are some arguments that genetically boys and girls can be different is that an important thing to recognize as well that even while we're trying not to put them in this man box as you say that sometimes there are differences based on sex
2: there are to a degree but most of them are created so a lot you'll hear this and you will see media reports about people identifying you know the boy gene or the girl gene or they'll find differences in the wiring of the brain. And if you actually read neuroscientists who deal with this, you know, on a daily basis, and I would really recommend Gina Ripon's work, The Gendered Brain, she takes a lot of these studies and goes deeply into this. They are they're kind of right in a way. What they get right is that the way in which we treat boys and girls creates the boy brain and the girl brain. But but even though, even that, t- that difference in between brains is really, really small and it's not big enough to explain all the things we then try and load onto those explanations. So yes, there is a slight difference, but it is socially and culturally implemented or imposed on girls and boys. Because if you look at their brains, when they come out of the womb, they're pretty much the same. And then we start to change them. But, and it's things like, you know, how we play with them. It's about what parts of the brain get activated. So it is, it's the interaction between nature and then the environment they're in and the kind of stimuli and the kinds of behaviors that they're exposed to that creates it. But interestingly, we kind of think, oh, well, they get hardwired at a certain point. No, they don't. (laughs) What the research shows is that you can, that hardwiring can, supposedly hardwiring, will start to change within as little as three months so, it's not hardwired. It is. It, At
1: any age or.
2: Yeah, pretty. And that's the other thing which are a lot of. So I
1: can do this to my husband. <laughs> is <what you're> saying. <laughs> I can rewire his brain. <laughs> well, this is the
2: thing. <laughs> I think it's fascinating because we have this idea that if we find a genetic or a brain explanation for something, then we kind of think, pretend, oh, that's fixed. Now, whereas if it's, if it's a social and cultural change that that we that if it's embedded in social society and culture then that's easy that's changeable that's malleable i would actually argue that at this point in our scientific development it's probably easier to manipulate genes than it is to change cultures and if you've ever tried to change in a a culture within an organization of any size you'll know what i'm talking Mm -hmm. about it's really really hard to change people's behaviors whereas with gene editing and the like you can manipulate genes so this idea that you know genes and brains are fixed on one side and then culture and society are changeable and malleable on the other, I think that's completely wrong. I think they're both very difficult to change, but the idea that it's fixed, no, it's not.
0: It's also extremely disempowering for Mm -hmm. boy parents and boys for us to have this view because when you boil it all down, we say because of brains, girls can do anything and boys are hardwired to be cavemen.
1: You know? Yeah,
0: it's extremely yeah. limiting the brain argument for boys.
2: Yeah,
1: and it's also that I mean I was just thinking then that I do um, think my husband is better at fixing things, but it it, it does it disempowers girls as well, right? So if mm. we think that um, boys are the logical kind of scientific fixy type people, that's an official word, fixie, Um, then we're disempowering girls as well by saying, well, that's what they can do and you can't do it. So it's a disservice to all of us, really, to put those expectations on them.
0: Yes. And so if boys are good at fixie things, they're not good, we say, at empathy, at showing emotion, at doing good deeds for other people. You know, which is extremely limiting to boys and because the research shows that all of those things are required to have a good life and to have good relationships with people.
1: So what were some of the things that the parents who were emailing you and asking you for help with their boys, what were some of the things that they were worried about?
0: So we contacted, um, we asked 15,000 parents To tell us what their biggest worries were and their biggest concerns and it was striking the similarities in the concerns and the questions that came back and and we um, distilled them down to nine big worries which is what we've addressed in our book but one of the biggest ones was the idea of they didn't want their boy to be tough but they also didn't want their boy to be weak And it was this idea that parents had to choose between one or the other, that if their boy wasn't tough, then he was going to be the kid who gets smashed up against the locker at lunchtime or kicked in the guts on the football field or whatever. And if they were being really honest, if they had to choose between tough and weak, they would choose tough. Um, So that came back in so many different stories and, and cries for help, really. But the good news is is that it is actually a false choice. You do not have to choose between tough and weak. And what we found was that the idea of making your boy tough actually makes him brittle, and that mm. actually makes him weak. Weak is a consequence of trying to raise your boy to be tough. And what we need to be doing instead is to be raising our boys to be strong.
2: If you think about strong, it's kind of about subtle supple. It's kind of about agility. It's gonna kind of be able to um, do what you need to do within a, a what you know in a situation, no matter what life throws at you. And this is kind of what we call strength of character in the book. So which is a kind of a very traditional idea of masculinity in some ways, because we're trying to get back to kind of something which is kind of about character. But that kind of can be—it can be empathetic. It can be sort of you know raising up people who maybe you know are weaker than us, and it kind you know kind of um, supporting other people. It's being involved with your community. It's kind of you know, and obviously age appropriate. But as boys get older, to start taking some responsibility for themselves and for others, and to really make that. part and parcel of their daily life and the expectation of boys so rather than this just very one-dimensional idea of tough which as Percy said is often it it's brittle it kind of can't really cope with the complexity of life and this is again goes back to the idea of the man box that we've got this particular idea of what boys should be and how they should be and it really doesn't serve them because tough is not appropriate in a whole range. In fact, I would say most situations, it's not appropriate. So having that strength of character, and it's about being who he needs to be in the situation he finds himself in.
0: And just a good example of tough versus strong. So a tough boy needs to dominate and control to feel okay about himself. He needs to be alpha. A strong boy feels okay about himself all the time. So he doesn't need Mm -hmm. to be dominant. He doesn't need to denigrate another person. So a tough boy will outrun new challenges because he can't handle failure or he'll outrun his emotions because he'll offload them onto people with anger or repression or then when he gets older, addiction. But a strong boy has the courage and the strength to sit with and carry his own emotions And that emotional bravery will then lead our boys closer to their goals. It will help them make better choices, help them form better relationships. So a lot of this, uh, when we talk about how damaging it is for boys to be tough, we talk about it in respect to women in society. But what we found in our book is that raising your boy with a strength of character is really good for him too, because people with those qualities have better lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the challenges parents of boys have at the moment at this point in history is since the Me Too movement, there has been a much wider conversation about toxic masculinity, which as a whole has been a really good thing, right? We've, we've talked about it. Uh, women are being heard and there's been a huge shift but it also means there have been more examples of toxic masculinity for boys than there are about role models of good men. Do you think that's a problem?
2: Absolutely, I think it is. Um, We were thinking, we were asked the other day, you know, who would be a good example of, you know, a role model for boys? And I actually couldn't think of anybody. I, I actually, I ended up saying <laughs> bandit from Bluey. So the cartoon <laughs> dog is the ideal. Now we're kind of... Look,
1: that's okay. That's, we all love Bluey. You can, get a, you can have a pass for that. It's not but, human, but, the, but it's still Bluey. But,
2: but this, this is the thing. And But if you look at all the, the examples of toxic masculinity, I mean, the Andrew Tates of the world, um, dare I say it, the Elon Musk of the world, I mean... These kind of people are held up as kind of cultural heroes. And they are attractive to boys because and young men, because they present a very definite certain idea about what masculinity is. And I think this is a real challenge is to kind of we need more positive role models of masculinity. Thankfully we we did come up with some. So Eddie Wu, for example. the the and the mathematician um, you yes. know, I really like his work you know, I would say, I'm, I'm originally from Tasmania So Bob Brown, Saint Bob yep. You know, what he, what he did for yes. the environment in Tasmania <laughs> uh, Probably a controversial one for a lot of people But he's Saint Bob
1: It is interesting because in some ways When we're talking about this And we're thinking of role models I think about my son and he's just turned nine And the way he is in the world I feel like I have a lot of hope for the way the younger generations are even changing the future without our influence. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is more fluidity in their concept of what is um, masculine or feminine, but m- much more inclusive than it would ever have been when we were children. I know we are the ones that are meant to guide them, but do you get that sense of hope from, from younger kids as well?
0: Oh, yes and No. <laughs> I'd I'd really love to say yes to that question and I think that your boy is very lucky to be growing up in a family and a bubble really that allows that fluidity, that allows that exploration but it is not the case in many, many boys' lives. We wrote about a dad who wouldn't let his son sit on the same seat as another boy because he's not into dudes Oh. You know, dads who are so afraid of their boy growing up to be a pussy, you mm. know, so he needed oh, to be dear. tough. Like, that still exists. Yes. Yeah. And overwhelming concern from parents about um, is it okay if they tell their boy to punch? Like, mm. that came back so much. And the fact that physical violence is still the go-to advice for so many parents means that we really do have a long way to go. And we, we yeah,
1: that's really surprising. Mm-hmm.
0: That that surprises me. That that's
1: still a conversation. But then maybe I shouldn't be surprised.
0: We had a little boy who told us we were talking about kindness and kindness and good deeds. That was for chicks and losers. Oh dear. Yeah. Oh, that hurts my
1: heart.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I, I I do share some of your optimism, optimism and but that I think it's partly because of the bubble. Because the you know I, I teach at a university, and a lot of young men, and kind of the sorts of things I hear from them they really are more respectful and they're kind of more open, the inclusive, they're interested. They certainly don't have the levels of homophobia that I saw around me growing up. So that does make me optimistic. But then I have to have a check and say, yeah, but this is a university. It's a very select <laughs> part of the population, you know, Melbourne, eastern suburbs. So it's kind of a very select part. Of but yeah, I am optimistic in kind of what I see in front of me. But then then I kind of look more broadly and hear some of these other...
1: Then you, you survey <laughs> <16, laughs> 15,000 yeah.
2: Then you hear these stories and go, oh, okay, reality check.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in a way we are kind of preaching to the choir somewhat with this podcast because we know that parents are con- that are conscious and um, involved and want to make a difference So the ones that listen to this and the ones that would buy your book. But also taking into account that unconscious bias that you spoke of, what would you say to a parent listening today who who does want to do the right thing, who's trying to raise their boy Mm -hmm. um, without that man box, what would you say there are maybe – so let's say there were three things they could do today to start that change – Apart from by your boy. Yeah. <laughs> <Look, the> bi- <laughs> That's just a given. The,
0: the biggest one, overwhelmingly, and so many things fit under this umbrella, is to love and raise the boy that you have rather than the one you thought you were going to get or the one that society tells you you should have. And Re- Brene Brown, the social scientist, she looked into what was it that gave some people a sense of of lovability, that they felt like they were lovable and other people didn't. What was it? And it wasn't socioeconomics. It's not where you went to school. It's not the job that you have. It's one thing, and it is whether or not you believe you are worthy of love. And that belief, that's on us. That's what we give to our boys. And the way we do that is to always treat them as if they are worthy as if their worthiness is non-negotiable. So our job as parents is to really see our child for who they are, not what we think they should be, who they are, and help them grow into the best version of themselves that they choose to be. And if they grow up with a non-negotiable sense of worthiness, you have given them the world.
1: Oh, I love that. I'll take that over three
2: <laughs> I was going to say there's probably one. more than three in all of this. <laughs>
0: but having said that like it's easy for me to say that but it can be really difficult for parents to do that Mm. particularly parents of boys because as we said the definition of what a boy should be is so narrow so it takes courage and bravery for us to allow our boys to be who they want to be and if your boy deviates from the man box or from this narrow definition then he needs you to be an even bigger champion Mm. for who he is because he's going to step outside your door and he is going to get pressure and flack. So you need to make your home so safe for him that he knows that as soon as he walks through the door, he is him and you love and accept him for him.
1: Casey, Christopher, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks thank for you having so me, much. Siobhan. That's Casey Edwards and Dr. Christopher Scanlon. They are the authors of Bringing Up Boys Who Like Themselves and you'll find links to the book in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.